While there were already Christians in Rome at the time of the Apostle Paul's arrival, there was quite a stir as word spread of his approach. Believers made their way down the Appian Way to three taverns and the Forum of Opius to see him. There they greeted Paul, and he was greatly encouraged. Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet broadcast with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. Paul enjoyed celebrity status as a hero of the faith when he arrived on the coast of Italy, but his path from there led to Rome, where he was once again a prisoner for Christ. Keep listening now as Dr. Boyce leads us through the final leg of the Apostle's journey and his arrival in that great city the place where Paul will finally bear witness at the ultimate seat of Roman authority. I can't help remembering as we come to the last chapter of the book of Acts and the arrival at last of the Apostle Paul at Rome of the first time I saw Rome. It was during my college years. I was traveling alone in Europe, which I had been greatly privileged to do, not only on that, but on a previous occasion. And I had come down to Rome from the north, where I had been doing some vacationing previously. I'd seen a lot of the capitals of Europe. I'd been to London and Paris. I'd spent some time in Geneva, many lesser cities. And yet, that uh, arrival in Rome was very impressive thing indeed. It's a great city today, and yet one can't help but feel, particularly if you know anything about antiquity and have any understanding of the ruins, what a great city, what an amazing city it must have been at the height of the Roman Empire. There's probably never been another city quite like it in all the long history of the world. It endured as the capital of the Roman Empire, a growing empire, for nearly a thousand years. And it was literally, during that period, or at least for most of it, the focal point of the known or civilized world. I'm aware, because we have a much broader worldview today, that there was an entire culture in the Orient of which the West was unaware for the most part. But our culture comes from the West, and during those very important years, Rome was the capital. The Apostle Paul had been thinking of Rome for a long time himself. He recognized that if the gospel was to become a world religion, Christianity was to expand everywhere, as he understood from the teachings of Jesus Christ it was, the time would come when it must be proclaimed in force from the capital. Paul's procedure had been to move from major city to major city, establishing churches and using those great economic or cultural bases as a platform from which the gospel would expand into lesser communities. He'd done it in Ephesus. Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, and Athens, and of course he always had his mind on Rome. Earlier in the 
book of Acts when he was saying farewell to the Ephesian elders. The story is in Acts 19. He said in his own words, I must go to Rome. We might think at that point that that was only a desire of Paul's, not necessarily one that was seconded or established by God in his own counsels. And yet when we come to chapter 23, we find the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to Paul personally, and on this occasion, his earlier testimony, I must go to Rome, is seconded by the Lord who said to him, you must go to Rome. You must bear a witness for me there also. And now here at the very end of the book of Acts, that happens. This has been the direction of the book all along, of course. We saw it back at the beginning when we established for our own help and assistance the outline that Luke provides by quoting from the Lord Jesus Christ in his particular version of the Great Commission. On that occasion, back in the first chapter and in verse 8, the Lord Jesus Christ said to his disciples, you will receive power from above and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We saw when we studied that that it is precisely the outline Luke follows. The first seven chapters of the book focus on the witness in Jerusalem, and it was a very great witness indeed. Miracles were done, the gospel was proclaimed, the church was established, the deacons were chosen. All of that happened in a formative way in those early days. And then came persecution. Persecution following the death of Stephen, which was persecution upon the church at large, not just upon the leaders. They had been subjected to harassment earlier, but now upon the church at large, and in such a strong and focused way, led in part by Saul, who later became the Apostle Paul, that as we're told in the eighth chapter, the Christians scattered in all the regions round about, the regions of Judea and Samaria. And there, for five more chapters, Luke, the author, tells us how the gospel was established in those regions. We know it's going to go beyond that because one of the incidents in that section of the book concerns Philip and his ministry to Ethiopia and his way back to Africa. We know the gospel is expanding, but in those chapters, Luke is talking about the witness in Samaria and Judea. Then, in chapter 13, where the Holy Spirit speaks to the church at Antioch and says, Separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have for them, at that point the great missionary expansion begins. Paul and Barnabas are chosen, and the missionary journeys commence, and the gospel spreads into the Greek and Roman communities, until here, at the very end of the book, it comes in the person of the Apostle Paul, to Rome. Now, Christians were there in Rome already. It shows that you don't need an apostle to establish a church. Not only were they there, they were there in great numbers. But certainly here with the coming of the Apostle Paul, a new era begins, or perhaps from the point of view of this book, this great missionary movement is completed. There are two sections to the portion of Acts 28 that we're going to look at 
The first has to do with Paul's arrival in Malta on the way to Rome at the end of the voyage in which the ship taking him to Rome was wrecked. The second has to do with his literal arrival in Rome. And then as we continue our studies for the last time, we're going to look at his final preaching there in Rome and see what that has to say to us. But here we have these first two incidents. Let's take the first one. The ship was wrecked. We saw that in our last study. All of those who were on board got ashore. The Lord had revealed that to Paul that they would. He had explained it to the captain, to the soldier that was in charge of the prisoners. He had won great respect with this man and with all the others on the ship. And now as the ship was wrecked and they made it ashore, what Paul said exactly was completed. Here comes a strange little story. We're told that when they arrived safely on shore, they found out that it was Malta. The islanders there showed them great kindness. They had built a fire. And as the stragglers came in out of the water, cold, weary, after all these many days at sea without any food or rest, the middle of the tempest, they tried to comfort them as best they could. Paul was not one to sit around. He was a very active individual, one who didn't consider himself above work. He was certainly a man who pitched in on all occasions, as Christians should all do. And he began to help out. He went around gathering up sticks for the fire. Apparently, in the middle of these sticks, no doubt because of the cold, there was a snake described here as a viper, stiff, that was mistaken for a stick and was therefore gathered up. But when the fire warmed it, began to revive and bit Paul. It is an interesting little sidelight on that. T.E. Lawrence, who is better known to us as Lawrence of Arabia, describes something almost like this in his book, Revolt in the Desert, describing a cold time when they were camped out in the desert. Desert, you know, is not always warm. It can be quite cold at certain seasons of the year, and especially at night. And that's exactly what happened. They had gathered up a long snake. It was stiff. They thought it was a stick. And Lawrence explains how when the fire began to warm it, it came out and slithered away into the company, in his case, not biting anybody. But here's what happened. This snake bit the Apostle Paul and the islanders who were looking on, who didn't know anything about him except that he was one of the prisoners, said to themselves, jumping immediately to a conclusion, well, this man must be some great criminal. The justice, that is, destiny, the great moral power of the universe does not suffer to survive. He escaped the tempest. He didn't drown, but God got him anyway. It's interesting how they jump to conclusions because several minutes later when they discovered that he did not swell up and fall over and die, which is what should have happened, but rather that his life was spared, they jumped to another conclusion and they said to themselves, well, if the snake bit him and he didn't die, he must be a god. And of course they were wrong on both counts. They were wrong when they assumed that God was out to get him and they were wrong when they assumed he was a god. They just made a mistake of jumping to conclusions. I was reading in a number of commentaries to see what other people have to say about this, and when I was reading Harry Ironside on Acts, he gave a story that came from his own experience of a 
of a minister who uh, had to write an explanation in the church bulletin, which Arnside had seen, correcting a rumor where people had obviously jumped to conclusions. He explained that the rumor that had been going around about him was not true. It apparently was to the effect that his wife had gone to a meeting of a sect where they were teaching heresy and that he had gotten so upset with her doing that that he went to the meeting, he dragged her out by the hair and brought her home and beat her up. And so he began to explain that that was not the case, that his wife had not gone to uh, this heretical meeting and that he had not dragged her out by the hair. As a matter of fact, he had never dragged her around by the hair. And also, he had not beat her up. As a matter of fact, he had never beat her up. And by the way, he did not have a wife because he was a bachelor. <laughs> it, uh, it is the case that we jump to conclusions, and certainly that's what these islanders had done in the case of Paul. They said, well, you see, he must be a bad man. And then they said, well, he must be divine, but they were wrong on both counts. It does raise the question, of course, how and why Christians do that. It's not something that is unique to pagans. We do it too. The disciples did it on one occasion. You recall the story is told in John 9 that when they were leaving the temple on one occasion and saw a man there who was blind, they jumped to the conclusion that it was the direct result of sin, either sin in his life or sin on the part of his parents. And so they asked the Lord the question. They thought they were great theologians and had worked their way through this carefully and only needed a little bit of revelation to carry them over the limitations of their own theological logic. They said, Lord, obviously this is due to sin. Tell us whose sin was it? Was it this man's sin or was it the sin of his parents? And our Lord had to explain to them that they had done the same thing that later these barbarian islanders on Malta were to do. They had jumped to conclusions because, as a matter of fact, in this particular case, neither explanation was valid. You mustn't do that with people. You know, there is a tendency to do that. Something bad happens to someone. I've heard it frequently said of other people. Something bad comes into their life. They have an accident or there's an untimely death or some such thing. Well, obviously they've done something wrong, and God is trying to teach them a lesson. We have to acknowledge that sometimes that is true, and so when bad things come into our lives, one of the questions we have to ask is whether God is trying to teach us a lesson by it. But we need to understand that that is not necessarily the case, so we must never, never in suffering make an easy one-to-one -one equation of suffering and sin. If we examine this, and it's something that is worth examining in some care in the Bible, we find that a number of very valid explanations can be given. One thing the Bible says, Job perhaps is the one who says it best in one section, saying man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward, is that suffering and various kinds of tribulation are just one part of life. We live in a fallen world and things do happen. I remember one of our deacons years ago, a man who long before it became a fad was given over to health foods and all of the things that are supposed to keep you healthy forever. He had a living room that was literally filled with books on health and health diets. I mean hundreds and hundreds of books in his living room. It was like the back room of a secondhand bookstore. 
And he followed this religiously. He was very, very careful about these things. Well, he got older, and as he got older, things began to happen to his body. It didn't function as well as it did when he was 20 or 40 or even 60. I remember visiting him on one occasion, and he said to me somewhat plaintively, I just can't understand what's gone wrong. He was beginning to fail in health, and he couldn't understand it because he'd been eating all the right foods and doing all the right things. I had to explain to them that as you get older, things do go wrong. It's not because you've made mistakes. It's not because you've sinned. That is just the natural course of life. I have to keep reminding myself of that from time to time, that as I get older, some of these things that aren't quite what they used to be, like my glasses, I can't always see what I'm trying to read. It's not because I've sinned, I think, that I have to wear <laughs> bifocals, but uh, that just happens. My father had to wear them before me, and no doubt his father before him, and so on. That's one explanation that is given. Another explanation that is given in Scripture has to do with our sufferings or tribulations being corrective. That is, when we go astray, God does bring things into our lives to bring us to our senses. That's why I said a moment ago that when bad things come, one of the questions we have to ask is whether we have gone wrong, and if God is bringing this into our lives to draw us up short, so we'll get off the wrong path and back onto the right one. One great chapter of the Bible that deals with that is Hebrews, the twelfth chapter, Verses 5 through 11 talk of God bringing discipline into our lives like a father disciplining a child. So that's one purpose. And then there's a, a third thing the Bible teaches about suffering, and that's sometimes it's not corrective but constructive. That is, God develops character by the things that we suffer. We know the great text that tribulation works patience, I'm not sure since I've come to understand that text that I have ever prayed for patience because that's God's formula for getting it. I think that's one virtue I'd rather skip if the way in which you get it is tribulation, but when God knows I need it, then he'll bring the tribulation. The things that come into our lives, the hard things that come, do build character, and that's a purpose. But then there is a final glorious purpose. It is perhaps in most circumstances presumptuous for us to jump immediately and assume that this is the case. But one purpose for suffering in the life of Christians is that it becomes a forum in which we can glorify God. I come to that naturally because having referred earlier to John 9, in which the disciples asked the Lord in the case of the man who had been born blind, what is the cause of this, his sin or the sin of his parents, the Lord replied, neither but that the glory of God might be seen. That's puzzling, you see. We look at that and we say, do you mean that God let that man be born blind and sit there all those years without sight just so Jesus Christ could come along at that moment and heal him and thus bring glory to God? Yes, that is what that text teaches. It's not our perspective, you see, but the reason it's not our perspective is that we focus on the 38 years, and God focuses on eternity, in the light of which the short span of our life fades into relative insignificance. The story of Job is that story. Job is the greatest story in the Bible about suffering. And the point of that story, the story of Job, is that God was to be glorified through it. And the interesting point from our perspective is that even when it got to the very, very end, Job still didn't understand what was happening. 
We do because at the beginning we see a scene in heaven. We see God calling Satan's attention to Job, saying, look, I'm going to glorify myself in him. You think he worships me only because of the things I give him. You can take the things away and he will still love me and praise me. You think it's because I've given him health. You can take his health away. He will still love me and praise me. And so God permits Satan to do it, and Job comes through triumphantly, not without a great deal of puzzlement, without a great deal of anguish, but he does not curse God. He praises him. Now, that was the case, of course, with Paul. This is a small incident, but this happened in order that God might be glorified. They saw the miracle. It opened new opportunities for service. A healing followed of the chief magistrate of the island, which incidentally is exactly the correct technical term for this particular figure representing the Roman Empire in that place. It's another example of Luke's accuracy. And then, as it goes on to say, there were other healings besides. And so that was Malta. Now the journey moves on to Rome. They spent three months there on the island because these were the winter months, you'll recall. The shipwreck had taken place in November, and that month had to pass, the latter half of it, and all of December and January, and it was certainly well into February, perhaps even getting on to March, when the weather began to clear up sufficiently for the ships to sail again. And here on the island, wintering, was another ship from Alexandria, a grain ship, part of that great fleet that carried grain back and forth from North Africa to Rome. And the soldier in charge of Paul took space on that ship, and the prisoners were transported. When we read this paragraph beginning at verse 11, it would almost seem that Luke had a notebook in which he kept a log. At any rate, this is the way it reads. They put in at Syracuse first the point of land closest to them when they were sailing north from Malta toward Rome. They passed from there to Regium on the very tip of the toe of the boot of Italy. From there they went on up between Sicily and Italy, passing through the Straits, and finally they came to Puteoli, and their journey by sea was over. And as Luke says, so we went on to Rome includes an interesting item at this point, saying that when they arrived there, word quickly got to Rome that Paul had come. Paul had written years before, written the book of Romans, saying that it was intention to come, and no doubt word had passed back and forth and had reached it before this. Paul is on his way. Probably they knew about his imprisonment, but now the word came that Paul was there, and immediately, it would seem, Christians in Rome set out down the Apian Way to see Paul. Some made it as far as the three taverns, some as far as the Forum of Apius, ten miles separating the two, and there they greeted him, and Paul was greatly encouraged. I'm sure he would have been encouraged. He didn't know what he was coming to. He had written to Rome. He knew of people in Rome, but no doubt he had questions as to how he would be received, and now here were the Christians coming out to greet him. And yet, you know, when I read this and read of his encouragement, I can't help but remember that some years later, when he was writing to the Philippians, he spoke of trouble in Rome because of friction about the gospel, some of which was centered in himself. 
And later, when he wrote 2 Timothy, the last of his letters, he referred to a young man named Onesiphorus who came to visit him. And when he came to visit him in Rome, bearing greetings from other places and no doubt material help, financial help, he at first was unable to discover where Paul was. He searched him out diligently, it said, until at last he found him. Paul is thankful for that, but it's a little insight into what happened. You see, when Paul first arrived there on the coast of Italy, he was a celebrity. This was the great Paul, the missionary, and the Christians streamed out to see him. And uh, Paul was encouraged by it. Then Paul went to Rome, and he was in prison. First, he was in a house where he had some freedom of motion, but later he lost even that freedom, perhaps during a second imprisonment. But at any rate, as time went by, the Christians in Rome seemed to have forgotten about him, because when this man came and asked, where's Paul? They didn't even know where he was. He had to work hard to find out where Paul was, no doubt making inquiries with the Romans and tracking him down. They forgot about him, you see, as people do. People run hot and cold. But here, at a crucial moment, they were there, and they greeted him and gave him encouragement. When I look back on this story, the story of the voyage itself and the arrival in Malta and then finally the arrival at Rome, I'm struck by the great contrasts that are here. I wonder if you've noticed this as you've read the story or thought about it. Let me share three of them with you. One contrast is between the great turmoil and even danger without and Paul's quite evident peace within. See, as you read the story, these are tumultuous times. There's the storm, that's a literal tumult, but it's not only that. There was the tumult in Jerusalem that caused his arrest. There was tumult in the empire, things going, as it would seem, from bad to worse, all over and around him. And yet throughout all of this, as we read it, Paul seems to be at complete peace in the Lord. That's one contrast. And then secondly, there's a contrast between the vacillation of others and the steady progress of the apostle. You see, when Paul fell into the hands of the Roman authorities, at first they hardly knew what to do with him. The accusations were made, but they didn't know what weight to give to the accusations. One of the rulers said, well, let's go back up to Jerusalem, be tried again there. That's when Paul appealed to Rome. And then because he did that and he had to stay, this man kept him in prison for a long time because he really didn't know what to do with him. And we've seen the accounts of one king after the other appearing, and they're trying to decide what to do, back and forth, vacillating. And then in a very graphic way, the same thing is true of the ship, because the ship didn't even make a direct passage. Maybe it's illustrative of the other. Back and forth, two ships here, shipwrecked, now a change to another ship. Back and forth, back and forth. And yet you see, the Lord Jesus Christ had said to Paul, you shall bear witness of me in Rome. And what impresses us as we take our eyes off these other factors and look at Paul is that God is working with him in steady progress to bring him to the place where he will bear a witness. The other contrast, perhaps the obvious one, is a contrast between fear on the part of so many and faith on the part of the apostle. Fear of what people would say, even the Roman rulers seem to have had fear of that, fear of what the Jewish leaders would have to say, fear of what Caesar might perhaps say. 
all kinds of fear being expressed, but throughout it all, Paul, who had his mind not on others but on God, was strong in faith and made that progress. You see, what made the difference for Paul is that Paul was aware that God was with him, God had a purpose for him, that if God had said that he would bear witness in Rome, then he would most certainly bear witness in Rome, and Paul was willing to rest in that. Perhaps that's where the story ends and where the application should be most evidently made for us. We too live in a vacillating world, a world of dangers, among people who are filled with fear, but we're called to be as Paul was in the midst of all of it, counting on God, resting in Him, moving forward steadily to do the work that He has for us to do. We can do it because we know that if God leads us in that way, then the Lord will surely bless us in the effort, and the glory will go to Him now and forevermore. Let us pray. Our Father, we do ask for grace to rest in You in the midst of the uncertainties of life, and so to focus on You that all of these things that are without, though they have importance in their own way, I nevertheless not distract us from the calling that we have been given or the witness that we are to bear. Make us faithful, make us strong, give evidence in our lives of the presence of Jesus Christ. And we ask that you will lead others to faith through our lives and through our witness. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from the Bible Study Hour, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance is a coalition of believers that hold to the historic creeds and confessions of the Reformed faith and who proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a Reformed awakening in today's church. To learn more about the Alliance, select the appropriate link at thebiblestudyhour.org. Write to us at 600 Eden Road. Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601. Your financial support makes our broadcasting, publishing, online, and event ministries possible. Please consider making a gift at our websites by phone at 1-800-488-1888 or by mail. Canadian listeners can reach us at P.O. Box 24097, RPO Josephine, North Bay, Ontario, P1B0C7. Thank you for your prayers and gifts and for listening to the Bible Study Hour, preparing you to think and act biblically.